I'm Gigi Johnson, and this is Amplify Music Conversations, where we captured the voices and music panels from the Amplify Music 2021 virtual conference. Over the course of the panels, you'll hear more than 100 panelists from a wide variety of cities and countries, each working in their local communities to recover from the challenges and changes of the pandemic. You'll hear about new community models, collaborations, and ways of organizing, each recovering and transforming their own music environment. Let's just do the briefest rounds of introductions. I'm, I'm Seth Schachner. I'm a digital business development and music consultant. I'm based in LA. Got a lot of experience in Latin markets with Sony Music and other tech platforms. And I'm really happy to be here. Perhaps we can start with, uh, with, with John, and then we'll go around the horn just with the briefest introductions. Sure. Uh- Hi, everybody. I'm John Petricelli. I'm the founder of Bulldog DM. We're the world's most experienced live stream studio. You know, we uh, have a, we're an eight-year-old company. We specialize in best practices for live streaming and have a very deep and heavy core emphasis on music. And, and all, you know, obviously that's become a, a very hot topic in the past year. So happy to contribute to the conversation today. Hey, guys. My name is Anne McKinnon. I'm the founder of Overview Arc. We're making virtual concerts accessible to all music fans and artists. I'm also a journalist in the space, so very excited to see and hear about the new things happening. Morning, I'm Raymond Torres Santos, and I'm a composer of both classical music, and uh, I'm also on RTS Music, that produces records and some music and concerts. And I'm also a member of ASMAC, which is the American Society of Music Arrangers and Composers, and I'm the Director and Professor of Composition at Cal State University of Long Beach. You know, I think all of us can agree that um, whether it's just streaming or the overall rise of uh, subscriptions, that the digital music industry has got a lot of new opportunities that, that are out there well beyond streaming. And so what I thought we could start, if you, you know, each of us could just speak a little bit about the opportunities in front of you, whether they're in XR or gaming, or certainly in the compositional side. And we've got a lot to talk about with live streaming, but, you know, in particular, how local communities local venues, even individual artists have been in some ways affected or hopefully helped by, um, you know, by all the changes in digital music lately. And whoever wants to kick it off, feel free to jump in. I'd be happy to jump in there. Um, I can give a tiny bit of background before I dive in too much. So we started working with game engines, uh, virtual concerts, live music, combining all this new technology way back in 2017. So before anyone knew why there's reasons to do virtual concerts and a lot more streaming music. And from there, we began to tour these mini pop-ups with live VR concerts all over Germany, France, the UK, and warehouses, churches, music venues. And the idea with this is that you can take it anywhere around the world, but also not only reach your live audience, but reach remote audiences. So when you're talking about community and the opportunities, it makes it for venues, you can outsell your venue capacity. For artists, you can have virtual attendees. I like to add that it is true that everything really starts small and local. Uh, what is really, I think, what is amazing in this new world is that even if you are from a specific uh, town, you have opened up a whole new world and, and of doing business, which is quite interesting. Is that as a composer, for example, we have available to us composers uh, remote recordings around the world to take advantage of fine musicians, primarily from the Eastern European countries 
countries, uh, and, and we, we, we have had those resources for many years, but we composed a were a little bit suspicious about really doing it, how we could really rely on musicians and studios and engineers and, and the final product if you're not there. So what we have proven with this new reality is that that is really validated and that's the way to go. And now you see more and more orchestras in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, uh, Moscow, uh, Vienna, producing record recordings for either uh, classical music or film scores. And that's, and that's the way to go. And they, pro they pro provide not only a great orchestra and studio and engineers, they even provide services on pre-production, post-production, and send sending you all those products uh, via internet. And I could speak to myself, the latest uh, recording that I made uh, was with people from around the world, in Argentina, in New York, in Puerto Rico, in, in Bulgaria, in Israel, and, and we get those stems. Uh, we get all those re recordings that have been produced locally in specific places and they send to us and then we put together. The only, the only con, con about all this is that more and more I've seen musicians and vocalists to record in their own environment, which is good in their own homes, using their own uh, phones, the, the drawback about that is that we somehow have lost a little bit of the fidelity of really having live performance and having a good recording at a recording studio with a control, acoustic, and so forth. But what has opened up is the new career of a sound engineer that puts together all those stems hmm. and synchronize them. So I think that's a great opportunity for those individuals. Yeah. So remote collaboration for sure, but what, I mean, if if you think about some of the big traditional studios, uh, a Hit Factory, a Sunset Sound, you know, Abbey Road, is is uh, you know is is are they doomed or is there still a role for them going forward? Well, I just saw the a photo of a friend of mine uh, in Zoom just about two minutes ago and saying, well, I'm back at a studio recording my latest uh, rec rec uh, score and so forth. So. I don't know, there is beauty and there is really value in going to a studio. As I said, you have more control over your, your final product. And I hope that we will continue appreciating the fidelity of the sound. Mm. No, it's I a really important is, point. Go ahead, Dan. Please. Yeah, I, I'd love to jump in on this because I think what you're talking about, which is the fidelity of the sound, but also the live performance and being able to sit in front of your computer and be able to stream to, maybe it's for a professional recording, but maybe it's also to an audience in a virtual world. So if you imagine a lot of what's out there, which is these 3D fully interactive virtual worlds. So this is something that my company Overview Arc is working on. And there's a new technology coming out where you can have these three cameras set up that capture you volumetrically and stream you as you are realistically into a virtual world in real time. And you can have your avatar there. There can be the avatars of your audience, very high quality audio. And that interactivity that you get at a real concert, that's so exciting. So I think when you get into streaming in this sense too, there's so many new opportunities for everyone in the music industry. That's the, um, the, the audience size, I mean, you know, it's been all over the news at Fortnite, some of these events in the, in the mm -hmm. multi-millions. I mean, I, I know the, the video aspects, the three-dimensional aspects are obviously super cool. You know, and I, I sometimes talk to my teenagers who are on these things about the importance of audio fidelity. But maybe going back to the main point is, is audio fidelity, is that, 
is it the same quality? Is it unrealistic to even think about that? Or is it getting there? Give us a sense of where that sits. For the audio quality itself, I guess it would depend on what, uh, what again, what setup the artist has at home. Uh, we're working with some amazing streaming partners, one being Dash Video, their digital broadcaster in LA. So working with these different experts that have tools, especially for artists that can integrate into our world, meaning it can adapt to any use case or any type of sound quality that the artist wants to bring in. Uh, I'm really glad that you have brought that idea also, which is really that artists and musicians have to uh, buy new gear in order to really be able to produce at their le level from home and so forth. So there is another aspect of the economics of, of all mm -hmm. this. Yeah. So um, I wanted to shift a little bit. We talked about audiences and, you know, probably the, the biggest and most obvious story of, of the pandemic the last year has just been, you know, watching the live business, which supported so many artists kind of just get completely crushed. And so, you know, John's coming from a, you know, one of the bigger gorillas in the room in terms of the new environment of live streaming that has definitely exploded. And yet um, there's also lots of different platforms out there. So it'd be good to get your take a little bit because, John, I think Bulldog is a is a very impressive and interesting player that seems to hit a lot of different angles just to give us a sense of your experience with live streaming and, and where you're coming from in these new markets. Well, certainly it's unfortunate that you know, the lifeblood of the music business, which is the live, you know, the live touring, live performance business, you know, a $25 billion industry is that we all participate in, whether you're, you know, the weekend or you're an emerging artist, you know, that's an important part of, of your trajectory and your business. And that's largely been suspended for now 13 months. Uh, you know, I, I think Perhaps, uh, you know, an emerging technology clearly has been live streaming, which largely has been around for a while. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years and it started to gain traction, you know, five, six, you know, four years ago. But certainly, uh, I would say hyper accelerated, you know, in the pandemic. And it's also seen an influx of both innovation and capital. I think there are, you know, 100 plus companies now that are active in the space. And I think to the bigger question, too, is you know, you know, community, uh, you know, so any live independent live music, music venue in the country is an important part of just the overall, you know, economic ecosystem of, of a neighborhood, right? I think a dollar, according to Neva, any dollar spent at uh, a Neva venue contributes the ripple effect of $12 to that local economy. Uh, you know, live streaming can certainly help, you know, I think in addition to those new companies, a lot of the platforms have begun to double down on live streaming. You've seen Instagram, you know, lift the one hour limit to four hours now for verified accounts. Uh, YouTube has been always been a big player. YouTube also has a higher uh, audio fidelity. No question. Uh, all my time in this space, it's certainly well aware to me that audio matters actually more to the artist than the video. And, you know, I'm more in the white label business. So an artist would come to us and say, I want to do this myself. I want to you know drive this experience from my own site or maybe a promoter might say the same thing. And you know, we try to stream in up to true stereo audio, which really connects with those, you know, with those, uh, with those artists. But there's also, you know, this has also been, uh, you know, important time, I think, for innovation to the betterment of artists. Now you've got, uh, you know, 100 plus different options on who to work with, which didn't exist, you know, a year and a half ago. And my advice is talk to those companies, work with them, find out there's deals to be had. Um, you know, let's be honest, they're not all going to make it. There's just no probability that even a majority of them will. But there's, you know, there's deals and there's experiences that you can do currently 
that will, you know, put money back to the artists and no one's going to replace the 25 billion. But I think in the last six months of 2020, the live streaming pay-per-view industry generated about $610 million. So there's, there's real money there. It's, and certainly not the overall ecosystem, but I've seen uh, a great point in time right now where there's a lot of collaboration between the tech companies, the music ecosystem and the artists themselves. And you've seen kind of really impressive, cool executions as well. Yeah, no, for sure. And there's, there's definitely, I definitely had my experiences with different live platforms and I know how, how competitive the market is, but talk a little bit about, if you will, um, you know, how it relates to local communities. I'm obviously thinking of venues. We, you know, there was, there was a CARES Act. There's been a, a couple of acts, I believe, from the U.S. government trying to help. But maybe, maybe can you just give a sense on is, is the live stream boom? Is it, is it helping localities or is it mostly just a broad based, you know, national thing that will supplant the concert business and, and, and benefit artists more so? Oh, yeah. This is near and dear to, to us. I mean, we work, we, we're working with NEMA. We have been for the last eight months. And, Unfortunately, these were the first businesses in the country to go out, you know, stop and it'll be the last ones, you know, to, to reopen, which is, which is brutal. And this is not just the owners, it's the people that work there, the, you know, the doormen, the waiters, the waitresses, bartenders, you know, this is an ecosystem that is not functioning. And what we have endeavored to do is I think to Raymond's point early on in the pandemic, you would watch uh, an artist perform in their living room and it was different. It was, it was kind of authentic, kind of cool their husband or their wife or their kid or their dog would walk through the set and we all felt like, Hey, we're all in this together. I think as time has progressed, you know, the audiences and both the artists, they want a better overall experience, which is why I think, uh, you know, a platform like these 3000 venues at Neva, uh, we should be directing these shows onto those stages. It's the closest thing we're going to get, you know, until now you're on a real stage. It's uh, it's an important stage in someone's career. And again, there are 3000 of them. Um, a good example is we did uh, SOS Fest in October where these bands performed on these stages and became this three-day experience on YouTube. The SOS Fest brought, you know, there's a brand partner involved as well with, with Bud Light Seltzer, but got to see, you know, the Foo Fighters performing at the Troubadour and Miley Cyrus at the Whiskey, the Roots at the Apollo. Um, that's kind of an awareness play, but it also delivered significant raised $2 million for the Emergency Relief Fund. But I think now, uh, you know, any band of any kind can perform on these stages by partnering, you know, obviously with any one of these other tech companies that are available. Uh, now every social media platform can turn on a, a live experience. So there's the, the tools and the capability are there. You know, one of the, I think, other opportunities happening is because the stages have been dormant, you know, uh, we've been able to put in equipment like robotic gear and more bandwidth. So when we do return, it'll be pretty proactive, pretty easy. And now you've got a global audience who's now adopted this user behavior, right? They've done yeah. sessions or whatever. So, so, I mean, over time and ho- hopefully when, you know, vaccinations have, have covered as many people and, and we hopefully pull out of this pandemic um, and live events come back, I'm already starting to get, you know, notifications from Live Nation about my favorite artist or a show I bought tickets for last year. What What happens? Is there... Is there kind of a mix between going back to shows and the the consumption of, of live music streaming? Or in, well, in, yeah, in, in, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think that live streaming will ever replace a live event. And I think there'll always be a place for two because now the audiences are getting used to all these different formats. It means that there's potential for a greater audience. And when you have these stages where you have Miley Cyrus and Foo Fighters go in, 
that's not accessible to a lot of these artists who are up and coming. They need to do PR, they need to have record deals, or they need to find a good independent route. It's very, very challenging to be an artist. What these new ecosystems will enable between live streaming, between fully interactive virtual worlds, uh, between scanning at home, between having these live pop-ups, it's going to make this all accessible to 2.3 billion gamers in the world who are now becoming virtual concert goers. Also, it's very hard for artists to monetize, for smaller venues to monetize during this time. So what if you can scan your real-world venue, upload it very easily, drag and drop into a fully interactive virtual world, sell virtual tickets, sell virtual merch, stream your live performance in their fully interactive 3D. It's an entirely new experience for generations who have grown up digitally and the amount of time people spend in there as well and socializing is going to completely transform these new opportunities for artists. It's a very, very exciting time. It, it sounds like it's also mm-hmm. kind of a, you know, a new experience. I mean, from my limited experience, you know, watching the Travis mm-hmm. Scott stuff or uh, if you're familiar with the platform Roblox, that's, you know, well over a hundred million young people are signed on to mm-hmm. it. It isn't, you know, it's, it's certainly not Miley Silas in, in her den with the dog walking behind <laughs> her, you know, and it, some of these things are avatar based and they're, they're not even necessarily what we'd conceive of as traditional concert performances. Right. And I imagine the spending, the consumer behavior, in app purchasing, there, there's tons of just different aspects of what what you're describing. Yeah, what is important to to note is that even though live performance is desirable, but what we have learned with this new new mode of virtual re, re, reality is that, for example, let's take ASMAC. Even though ASMAC, which is the American Society of Music uh, Arrangers and Composers, is a national association. Primarily, it really focused on people in Los Angeles. So those members who live in Los Angeles took advantage of the live performance of master classes and, uh, and workshops. But none of the other members in the nation were able to be in LA. Now with this new mode, now not we only have really reached out to members in the nation, now we have a new chapter in New York, now we have, we're, we're considering opening other chapters in the world, and people from around the world are meeting and really uh, taking advantage of all the, the, pro, the, the, the professional de- development that we are really creating in, by means of master classes, workshops, talks and so forth. So I think that that's really has been for ASMAC has been an, an amazing new world that we have never imagined that we were going to experience ever. And, and we were starting to have an educational outreach in schools. And even though schools uh, closed, now we're reaching out to more students than we could reach out to only one location. So, I mean, it is, it is positive to hear that you know, it is about expanding the market. Sometimes people think it will replace other forms of spending. Um, you know, about the idea of business models and monetizing, there's global audiences here. Someone in Argentina is going to be on a very different model than someone in the United States or someone in France. I mean, what what's sort of your, your point of view on how these these new initiatives get monetized and, and what different audiences can afford and pricing in general? Well, I, I think in all of this emphasis on uh, pay-per-view, people have not paid attention to ad-sponsored live content. And the advertising industry is a $503 billion crazily disrupted marketplace. And the, one of the emerging monetization models here is, is brand-powered experiences. And I say that because largely watch time. People, the reality is 
people watch live stream content far longer than they watch anything, right? We're seeing things we did, solutions we did in the past 12 months through a, a microsite experience. The average watch time was 41 minutes. And if I'm a brand, if I can get someone's attention for six or seven minutes, that's a home run for me. I mean, the average consumer attention span has dropped from 12 seconds down to eight seconds, you know, and, and it's trending, you know, lower and lower. And I say that not for just the biggest bands in the world, but you could be, a, you know, a local or an emerging band. Those, those bands still have social followings and growing fan bases that can tune in when to watch these shows. So you have, um, you know, uh, an ad partner, there's a big opportunity in that world. I think collectively we have to do better, uh, have a better you know, way of tactfully delivering that into Madison Ave. But also, you know, pay-per-view has now become an adopted, accepted uh, presence. You've got platforms like Sessions that really focus on, you know, emerging bands. And, you know, Tim Westergren has publicly stated that bands don't need tech. They need marketing to, to draw people's attention to their shows. And he's got a, like a $75 million fund to promote and market. I believe there's a third window because when I do pay-per-view shows, the fans watch every single minute of these shows, 97 consecutive minutes of viewing is a hybrid where um, a brand like Samsung might sponsor a live stream or the local Nissan dealer might sponsor a show by an artist, you know, a Detroit artist. It's a local, you know, a local business. I think that's a really interesting emerging bit because the, the brand doesn't have to pay a massive fee because it's a, you know, behind a paywall, but they're getting the benefit of a highly, you know, a, a concentrated audience that's going to watch the entire experience. And they're going to be thrilled that, it's brought to them by a local business because now they can, you know, they can actually mm -hmm. see it. Or I might want to watch a show in Miami and I live in LA and it can be an emerging band. So I think there's a lot of opportunity that's going to emerge both now. And then when we get into what's called, I think the question you asked earlier is the big thing is hybrid, right? So people in the room mm -hmm. also now amplifying the shows out to a bigger audience worldwide. Definitely. It'd, be, it'd definitely be interesting to see some hybrid models. Even if I bought a ticket and had a, you know, in much the way some of the digital content models in the past have actually worked. I think Live Nation's done that in the past with, with virtual downloads and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. How accessible are a lot of these tools and platforms we're talking about for, for indie artists out there? And I mean, are there any special infrastructure or bandwidth needs you think you need to, to really make the experience work for everyone? Yeah, well, I think at the moment, there's pretty much no tools or virtual concert platforms that are fully interactive, fully live, that are accessible to artists. That's one of the problems that we're trying to solve. So we're currently in closed beta. Uh, we did four prototype events last year with our partners. They were indie bands, uh, independent DJs, hosts. We had fans coming from Argentina to the Philippines and the UK and the US. They're all free to play. Um, then the artists would sell merch and sell tickets. That's virtual merch and digital merch. The artist keeps 100% of the proceeds from that. Uh, so to just to log in, to set up your profile, there's no cost to start. Anyone could be an artist in this ecosystem. Anyone could start in these smaller venues, smaller clubs with a smaller audience. And the idea is you work it up. So it's almost like you can think of a gamified experience. So once you sell out your smaller venue in the virtual world, you can unlock your bigger venues. You can bring your fan base with you, grow your fan base in a world that transitions to the real world as well. If you want to get to the stage where you have more sophisticated setup for streaming, then you can invest in hardware for your home or for a venue. Venues will eventually have these as well, which we've been talking about. So the whole the whole point with this is that everyone should be able to have it. it should be democratized access. So not just for your Travis Scott or Fortnite artists um, or DJs at uh, Tomorrowland, uh, yeah. but for anyone to really get into this. 
Cool. So do you, just so I understand what you're doing individually with your enterprise, is it, is it purely based around XR and VR? Are you also supporting just classic, what we would understand to be live streamed events or is it a mixed stuff? Yeah. So we're actually not VR or XR first. Um, the first way that people will log into our ecosystem is on your PC, on your mobile phone or Mac. Uh, so fully interactive. Anyone that is a gamer, so in the same way you might play, let's say, Fallout 4 or Halo or Fortnite or Roblox, you can jump in on your computer with your avatar, wander around this world. The way we're starting is like a festival. So if you think the first time South by Southwest was set up, it was a smaller festival. You had a couple of bigger stages, a couple of smaller venues. That's going to grow. So we're obviously going to scale this. It's a very technically complex project, uh, but also it's pretty exciting to see how people use it, how people break it at this time. Uh, so we're going to slowly letting in more users. Um, yeah, I think I hope that answers the question a bit. No, it's it sounds super cool. And, and folks, we're we're a couple minutes from wrap up. So, but Raymond, I'm interested in uh, maybe closing with you, getting getting some of your thoughts on the creative side to this. It's it's quite a mix of stuff in front of you. And uh, are are you are you optimistic about it? Or does it sound a little complex and too too left of a turn from the traditional way of oper- operating? No, but at the same time, as a as a university professor, let me tell you about the experience I've seen my students. Now they're able to really use their own notation software and uh, and software like Logic and Cubase and so forth to produce mock-ups and to share their screen with me when they are in their in their lessons, in their composition lessons. So I really that we don't really waste time as before of going to my office and studying to talk and so forth. Now we go and jump right in. Uh, the the drawback that I see, the drawback that I see about all this is that families and students will have to acquire new equipment, and somehow the question is what will be the right equipment, where they should go to buy. Uh, I think that we should start getting kind of a network or really helping people to decide what it, where to find and what to find out there. And I think that that has been the, the drawback that I've seen right now about, uh, about families and students to really getting the economics. Uh, second is from the standpoint of teaching, we professors believe that our students have plenty of time because they're home. And what we found is the students are exhausted because every professor is giving them much more work that they usually have done in the past. In yeah, the- yeah. So that's really is a dilemma right there. It's hard to slack off in the back of class when you're on Zoom invisible as well, right? It's much more challenging. <laughs> okay, well, look, I mean, we could go another half hour, but I, I don't think we have the time. I appreciate everyone coming in today, Anne and John and Raymond. Well, thanks for listening to Amplify Music Conversations. We hope you enjoyed this discussion and come back to listen to our other podcast episodes, either following us in your favorite podcast player or at amplifymusic.org or even on YouTube. And you can find a way to sign up for our email list and join our various groups on Facebook and on LinkedIn. We'd like to thank the Institute of International Business at the University of Colorado, Denver, who sponsors this podcast series, as well as the conference sponsors, Mia, UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music, the Creative Arkansas Community Hub and Exchange, Ben Zugel, Tully, and Lyric Find. We've had great support putting this conference together this year, and we look forward to continuing these conversations with you through this podcast. 
Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.